Welcome to Help From Future Self. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Help From Future Self, a conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex, and I am joined as always by my Keyforge coach, my Keyforge pal. It is Coach Boulevard Paper Fight. What's the haps, Blake? Hey, Alex. How's it going, man? Um, I don't want this to be a downer intro to the episode, but big news in the world of Keyforge this week and uh, should not be uh, surprising to anybody that we're addressing this right off the top of the show. On the Crucible cast this week, Brad Andrus announced that he is leaving FFG and will no longer be involved with Keyforge going forward as a designer. Um, what a bummer. Um, not yeah. that I begrudge him his uh, career progression and whatever endeavors he's he's moving on to next. But because that guy has been such a like a force in Keyforge, basically since since uh, I was aware of the game, essentially he was the guy. Yeah, it's true. He and he had such a great personality. Like when he was on podcasts and stuff, like he had always was joking around and had great insight into the game from a perspective I didn't actually, I wasn't expecting from someone who created the game. And I thought that was such a unique, cool thing. Like the way he viewed the game of Keyforge, I thought was really cool. So um, I definitely think we're going to have him, uh, his footprint on the game is not something that will disappear easily, I think. Mm -hmm. He's also a person I think was extremely giving with their time. Um, He -hmm. appeared on any podcast that asked if they could hang out with him, basically, and have him on the podcast. And every single time he dropped gems of knowledge on the, the anybody who was interested in just asking him about what his design philosophies were around the game. You know, obviously Richard Garfield is the creator of Keyforge, but I feel like for as long as I've been paying attention, Brad has been kind of the architect and the face of the design team. And uh, he will definitely be missed. And like you said, uh, you know, there's still sets coming out that he has a hand in. Obviously, he was involved in Mass Mutation. Um, and probably I think in one of his recent podcast appearances, he said that he had worked on like, you know, sets six and seven even. So it'll be a long time before we see no trace of him in the game, but I still feel like it's worth acknowledging the fact that, that he was this incredible force for it and, uh, probably responsible for a lot of the things that we love about Keyforge. So thank you so much, Brad. It's, uh, been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Oh, um, Moving right along, we're going to be talking about a little bit about uh, Sealed Adaptive, which is a format that I think everybody in our local community has kind of fallen in love with a little bit over the last little while. We've mentioned it in the past, um, but we really wanted to dig in on it and why it's so cool and why it's something that you might want to try out with your local community if you haven't already. But before that, there are mass mutation spoilers flying everywhere. I can't turn around without getting hit in the face with a mass mutation spoiler. Uh, Blake, have you noticed that it just seems to be this total torrent of them lately? I think a lot of it is uh, our good pal. Um, actually, your good pal mainly, but also a pal for me too, is um, our convict on Twitter. And um, yeah, he got to play a deck that was the promo deck that was revealed and he played with it and then wrote an article about it and showcased a lot of the cards, which was uh, super cool. So uh, thank you, Arthur. That was, that was really awesome and gave us a lot of insight into different things. Absolutely. Because he now has like the very unique experience of having actually played a mass mutation deck. Uh, Arthur uh, was able to write up a bunch of stuff for his blog. If you head on over to our convict.com, that's spelled A R C H O N V I C T.com, there is an article right there where he breaks down everything that was in the deck that he got to play. Woo, the naturalist of car keys. 
Um, so Blake and I were chatting a little bit about it, and we thought, you know what? Let's bring back over under, but this time we're going to make it predictive. So we each selected two cards, and we are going to see if we think now that these are going to overperform for us or underperform for us based solely on just reading the card text. So neither of us have played with these cards. We're just looking at them and thinking about them and trying to contextualize them with our understanding of the game. So why don't you get us started, Blake? All right. So the first one for me is I think this one's going to be an over. And it's a Logos creature called Q-Mex. And it's got one power with a playability of draw a card and a destroyed ability of archive Q-Mex. Now, I think if you get a dis house with this, it's mm-hmm. going to be super bonkers because there's a lot of discards that say destroy a friendly creature and then it causes a triggered effect to play. And this seems like a card that um, is really great in the sense that not only do you get to cycle for it, it basically replaces itself as well as it creates the utility of putting it into your archives once destroyed and you can reutilize it again potentially. So there's many different things in the game where having a bigger hand size uh, can pull off some key cheats. Uh, it also can do some things like, you know, you're, you you want to just cycle more cards in a way that you, like that's in your archive, so it's not technically in your hand. You pull it and you're going to basically get one more card that turns, see more, go through faster. All those good things that come with uh, the logo shenanigans. So I could see this being an over card uh, just by the way that it has the utility to be abused with the destroy factor and dis. Super interesting. I'll be very curious about that one myself. I'm going to go with an under. And this one, I think, uh, uh, might be a sign of things to come. It is a Saurian action called Spoils of Battle. You get one Amber Pip for playing it, and its play effect is thus. A friendly creature captures one. Each creature with Amber on it captures one from its opponent. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like a Terms of Redress. You know, you get an Amber for playing it. You capture two Amber because... Uh, pandemonium. Or, sorry, what did I say? Terms of Redress. Pandemonium is the one where each opponent, each damage, undamaged creature captures one from its opponent. It's like some like similar effect, basically. Yeah, I think it's like a hybrid of those two cards because, yeah. you know, terms of redress, this is an automatic two capture, right? Like, even if you have no other cards active, the first sentence says a friendly creature captures one and then each creature mm-hmm. with amber on it captures one. So it'll capture two unless I'm reading this wrong. And no, then, no, you're right. Yeah. And then every other creature captures one from its opponent. I think this thing's going to be a mess to play. Um, Pandemonium is a card that I have never had any success with. Um, and I think that the ultimate, um, effect of this thing is going to be that we are seeing a tamping down of capture effects in Saurian. That is my prediction based on this card. I think that, uh, the design team realizes that they went a little overboard with capture shenanigans and the way those could swing the game with things like city state interest and tribute. And so now they're trying to make these sort of big capture, big effect capture cards, a little more two-sided, a little more risky, a little more risk-reward. I think Spoils of Battle is a pointer towards that. So on its face, it looks pretty good, and there certainly be in situations where it totally benefits you to do it. But I think also in mirror matches, it's going to be a nightmare to figure out how to use this thing. So Spoils of Battle, I'm predicting it's going to underperform for me. Interesting. Yeah, when I uh, when I saw this card, uh, you talked about it. I was like, hmm, I wonder how this could work. And I could also see it being really, really good if something like um, Senator uh, Bacchus still exists, mm. where you can spend the ember on your creatures. Like then, then it's going to be really good. 
And it could also hurt you if your opponent has one, then you would maybe have to rethink playing it, which is kind of interesting. So um, I, I could see that being really cool. So we'll have to see if that card shows up again. Yeah. If you have a deck with Senator Brackus and like a legacy pandemonium, holler and let us know how that's worked out for you. I'd be I'd be curious to know if that goes off. All right. So on for my second card is um, obviously I had to choose something from Star Alliance. And uh, mine was Away Team, which aside from having the sickest art I've ever seen, like they're making a play mat from what I've seen. Mm. I believe you sent it to me, Alex. And it's the most gorgeous art. Like I, I vowed I will never buy a play mat again, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up buying this play mat and not using it, just framing it because the art looks so nice. And this card is a five power creature card, but it has three traits, which is alien, human, and robot because... It's basically a team of people, which is making me wonder, will we see the Entropic Swirl again, which deals two damage and you gain Ember for each trait, which I'm kind of interested about. And this card has a destroyed effect, which says put each upgrade on away team into your its owner's archives. And let's be honest, like if, if the upgrades are anything like we've seen in Worlds Collide, for Star Alliance, that's going to be such a powerful tool to have. Like, you can just basically save them, play them again. They almost all have Ember pips on them. So that's getting a second dose of that Ember. I could see that being extremely overperforming, potentially, if you have a deck with a lot of upgrades. It's almost like a, a transporter platform in a different way. Super cool. I love the art on this one. I love everything that it suggests. And it, yeah, it, it uh, absolutely has a really cool ability, especially if you have a deck that's stocked up with all of those cool Star Alliance upgrades. No word yet on whether or not we're going to see blasters in this set, but I will be very curious to see which of the ultimately cool uh, Star Alliance upgrades make the make the jump from mm -hmm. uh, Worlds Collide over to Mass Mutation. Um, my last one is Big Over. I think this card is ridiculous on its face. Um, and uh, it's called Cyberclone. It is a Logos creature. It's a mutant. Check this out. It is one power creature, but that doesn't matter because its play effect is thus. Purge another creature. Until Cyberclone leaves play, it has power equal to the purged creature's power and gains that creature's armor, keywords, and traits. So essentially, it is a mimic gel that doubles as removal. So literally, oh, it can be. Cool. I know it's nuts. I looked at it and I was like, so okay, let's let's say that my opponent has no creatures that I like. Then it's just a straight replacement for a creature on my own battle line. You know, I can throw it out there and take out one of my own creatures. But like, there's no point to ever doing that. At the very worst, you take out the best of a bad lot of creatures across the board from you. It's purged right out of the game, and you get the cyber clone to act like that creature. So, you know, that's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario, you purge your opponent's best creature and then get his best creature on your own side. It's nuts. It's 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 just a combination of all these like classic, you know, um uh uh things like uh, hypno beam and Mimic Gel, and Straight Purge Removal folded into one card with, as far as I can tell, no disadvantage. Yeah, that seems pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious what the design philosophy behind this one is because it seems like I hesitate to say OP. People throw those word, those letters around an awful lot. But when I look at it, I'm just like, I, I, I want three of these in every deck. I This is this is like mimicry to me. You know, it's, you, it's, you know what I think about it is that if you think about Logos, it doesn't have a lot of 
spot removal that straight up removes a creature mm. or gets rid of it if it can't be destroyed for some reason. And this this surpasses destroyed triggers because it's a purged. And it also, like, it'll get around if, like, you had a, an Imperial Scutum, for example. It would surpass that so the Ember would still come to you. So I think it's a way of having just, a, like, a one-off removal card in Logos because they they really don't have it. Like, Thorium Plasma, you have, you have stuff that does damage and then standardized testing, which is coming back. But aside from that, there's not a ton of, like, just straight-up removal other than, like, the Think Tanks, but it's so, like, you know, finicky. This one just feels like it's a it's a nice little bit of spot removal for um, logos, and I've yep. noticed they've been doing that with logos. Is they've been kind of filling in these little gaps that exist with a card or two here, which I think is kind of interesting. I gotta ask you, Blake. Um, you and I have had a lot of conversations about um, how if you have a deck that has you know a really strong Star Alliance house and let's say a really strong Saurian house. Um, most people go Logos, but I think you and I are both kind of dis people when it comes to what that third strong house is in an otherwise already strong deck. Like, is that just a personal preference? Because um, I feel like I Logos actually, is I think crazy Logos strong is right stronger, but I, I just find I enjoy playing the dis decks more. Like, I, I think objectively, if I was, like, evaluating, I think the, the Logos decks are stronger because it allows that that speed factor of being able to go through your deck more quickly and get the components that you need. But I find I just enjoy playing the combination of those cards with discs. Like those are like, I have fun playing those decks the most. That's, that's more what it is for me. Yeah. I, I think I a hundred percent agree with you. And as much as I, I totally agree that I think logos is probably objectively a stronger house than discs in worlds collide. When I look at what logos does in the context of, um, like a Star Alliance suite and a Saurian suite, oftentimes I find Dis is giving me like an extra ingredient in the mix. So like I've got my Saurians doing one thing and I got my my Star Alliance doing lots of super efficiency things, drawing cards, you know, archiving cards and stuff like that. And I kind of don't want Logos to double up on that, even though it makes things faster. I kind of like having the other tool in the toolbox, which oftentimes is what Dis brings to the table. Yeah, 100%. So before we go on to our uh, next segment, I just wanted to ask you, um, what house combo, like of two two houses, let's say, not let's not do three and make it too too, um, you know, specific. Like, are you most excited for for mass mutations? Because so far, like when I was looking doing my research for this, I think I'm most excited to have a deck that has Star Alliance and Sanctum together. Yeah, I mean, Sanctum looks like it's going to have a lot of interesting new tools, and Star Alliance is bringing back a lot of stuff that I already love. Like, Quintrino Flux is in the set. We know that now. Quixelstone is in the uh, the set. We know that now. Plus, they're getting all kinds of really cool new tools. Um, I think, for me, I am very, very, very interested to see what we get out of Logos. And then I would also say Sanctum. I think those two together are probably going to have a very varied tool set when you put them together, where there's not going to be a lot of redundancy. Each one of them is going to play a part. And that's kind of a, a, a way I like to play Keyforge. Um, in as much as it's nice to have redundancy across three houses so that your deck does a couple of things super well, I kind of like it when you have a nice, well-rounded deck that each house brings something a little bit different to the table. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna go. Uh, I'll say logos and uh, sanctum. Yeah, I feel you on that. See the sanctum guys back. Yeah, I know. I've they're, they're, it's looking really good. It's looking like it's actually looking like the perfect answer to dinos from what I've seen. Like they look like they're gonna have really good matchups when you go 
sanctum dinos versus one another. I'm, I'm very curious to see how that matchup plays out. Uh, I also wanted to, to give a quick note here that when I'm looking over some of the cards that they're bringing back from Sanctum, they are bringing back, like, just from the older sets, some serious firepower. Um, Barrister Joy is back. Mm-hmm. And Cleansing Wave. I was super stoked when I saw that. Yeah, so even before we start getting into some of the awesome new stuff that they have access to, we are going to see so many good little uh, uh, old-school Sanctum cards, I think, in this set. And I will be very curious to see how a card like Barrister Joya uh, interacts with uh, some of the new dynamics that we're seeing in Keyforge these days. Indeed, indeed. Sealed Adaptive. Um, it, Vancouver scene is having a love affair with it right now. We've played it every single sealed event for the past, what, month? Yep, that sounds about right. And there are so many things to recommend it. Um, but before we start getting into that, Blake, explain to folks exactly how Sealed Adaptive works. All right. So Sealed Adaptive works is it's pretty much best suited for single deck sealed. Like that's that's where it really shines. I don't know if I would recommend doing this in the three deck portion. I think you keep it traditional sealed that way. But this is a good answer, I think, for the single deck sealed environment. So what happens is you open your deck as per usual, and then at the start of your game, one deck is represented as a forged key, the other deck is represented as an unforged key. You both state, uh, you both choose what you want to play, either your opponent's or your deck, by choosing a key to be shown as forged or unforged, and then you both at the same time reveal the key choice that you have, and if you both chose your own deck, then you play sealed as per usual. If you both chose a deck that is the same, like the same deck, then whoever's the owner starts the bidding of chains at zero, and then you bid up until someone says you can have it for X chains. And then there's also the potential for a reversal format where if you each choose each other's deck, then you just shuffle them, pass them over, play them blind. And um, there's two ways you can play the adaptive side of it if it goes to taking a deck on chains, and that is uh, before the tournament starts, you decide if you want to play where... It is true sealed and you never get to see the deck list and you if you win the deck you win it blind or you choose that you can see the deck list because there is no official ruling yet uh last night we actually went for a true sealed um at first people were opposed to it but when we did the help from future self invitational i insisted that we did it adaptive closed so it was a true sealed adaptive game where you only knew the houses bid based only on the houses then you played basically only knowing the houses and um, we did that tonight or last night and it worked extremely well and I think we might end up sticking to that but we may occasionally switch it over once in a while but it's just a, it's a few ways that you can enjoy the key the game of Keyforge differently when playing a single deck sealed I gotta say um, this is the most important thing that I think that sealed adaptive brings to the table um if you've played a lot of sealed games of Keyforge, you know that occasionally you open up a stinker and it's just it for you. Like you just, you, you had no option. You opened up an underpowered deck. Other people opened up average or above average decks. And you're just always on the back foot, always like struggling to catch up. And it can be a bad evening. Like, because you feel like you spent money on the deck, you spent money to play. And uh, ultimately you never really had a fair chance. Sealed adaptive gives everybody a fighting chance and i have an example from just last night um i won the uh sealed adaptive tournament and i had a crappy deck that uh ranks amongst my lowest decks in my entire collection 
because I only played it the one time and I lost with it the one time that I played, but otherwise I won my other three games. So the way that it works is if you open up a deck, you look at it, you go, this is garbage. You always bid on your opponent's deck. Even if it means you end up playing your opponent's deck with chains, oftentimes, and blind as we did last night, that is the difference between winning and losing sometimes. So it gives you extra ability to choose your destiny when it comes to playing Keyforge. People love choices in Keyforge, and this is an extra choice that you get to make and an extra level of strategy and skill that gets brought to the game. Blake, how do you decide whether or not you're going to bid on your opponent's deck or you're going to run with your own deck? Um, a lot of it goes against the the houses that are that are on the other side of the table. So if if they have something saucy, like like for example, if I see if if for like for, well, let's go with last night. So last night I opened a Brobnar Saurian Star Alliance deck, and I honestly really liked the deck. I thought the rating was way off from how the deck performed. I went three one as well, and I guess you had a strength of schedule that that surpassed mine greatly or maybe it's just because the game recognized that you were always playing other people's decks and you still won so it's like yeah we got to give the win to this one Jim <laughs> <laughs> works in mysterious ways i and, will pretend uh, to understand it <laughs> and so when i was i had the advantage i felt because my deck being saurian and star alliance makes it instantly people go oh that that could be hotness and then it has Brobnar, which makes people go, uh, I don't know. So it gave me this, this unique position I felt on the evening because if someone else had a Saurian and Star Alliance, which happened a couple times, they may be like, oh, I want to play um, my deck more than theirs because their his has Brobnar and mine doesn't. So I would use that to my advantage because oddly enough, all my opponents ended up having Saurian in their, in their deck. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think except for my first opponent, but the the other the other three opponents did, and so they didn't want my deck. And so what happened was, is I actually always chose my opponent's deck because I felt it was very likely that they were going to want to choose their own, and I did it from the strategy of wanting to just get some chains on their deck, just to just to slow it down a little bit. And I I knew as well that the fact that they had the house combinations that they did of dinos usually in two other pretty decent houses that if I did have to take their deck, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Cause I noticed my deck had a lot of combo situations in it so that if you're playing it blind and you don't know what's coming and the things that exist, it could actually hose you quite a bit and you could just misplay the correct opportunity that exists. So that was a big thing for me. And my decision is I literally, except for the first game where I wanted to play my deck and understand it and make sure that happened. I basically always chose my opponent's deck and put chains on their deck in the end. And it was usually only like four or five chains. But the idea was it gave me a slight incremental advantage by them drawing basically five less cards or four less cards throughout the the course of the game as a result. Yeah, I mean, in as much as I've said that uh, an important lesson that I've learned with chain bidding is that sometimes you trust your own deck. If you fundamentally don't think your deck is good, let other people try and pay for their own deck like uh, i genuinely i i felt people on the whole probably let my let me have their decks a little bit cheaper than they should have because once you start getting to that point where it's like oh two less cards you know that's that's pretty brutal but you know um the 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 game that i lost my opponent played their own deck at nine chains i let them have it at nine chains i figured that would be enough to slow them down it wasn't and it was a great win on their part. They played like an absolute champion at a huge disadvantage. Um, shouts out to Daniel. 
But it was just one of those things where I was like, this, this is a, a basic level of strategy that everybody now has to learn and internalize. And it has so many factors going into it. It's your knowledge of uh, your ability to assess the deck that you pull. Is it good? Is it bad? Do I want to play somebody else's? It has that risk factor of, okay, their deck looks good based on the house choices, but is it going to be better than this deck, which is, you know, it's super hard once you get into those middle-of-the-road decks. Like, obviously, if you have a deck that's untamed Brobnar Shadows and the other person has Star Alliance Logos uh, uh, Saurians, chances are that the latter is probably going to be a stronger deck. But you don't know that for a fact. There's lots of middle-of-the-road decks in both those houses, so it has that wonderful mixture of strategy and also chance. You just don't know. So the chain bidding builds in that terrific strategy and poker element. Can you tell from what your opponent is saying and how they're acting when the chain bidding is going on, whether or not it's worthwhile to do it? Um, I, it just it gives so much extra flavor to a plain old sealed game. I never want to play straight sealed ever again. Yeah, and, and just to add on to that, you also have the fact that um, I think it's interesting as well as the tournament goes on, it creates a different pro- like proposition because if you've been playing your deck and you keep going deeper into the tournament, your familiarity with your deck is also greater. So you could almost even use a strategy where you're going to take your opponent's deck because they're familiar with it which also mean they know how to break it down, but they don't know what cards they're drawing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you're actually throwing them a curveball by just later on in the game something like, you know what, I'm just going to switch up here and grab their deck because I feel I'm strong at playing off the cuff. And then you can literally just take their deck and then all that time spent in the last two rounds or three rounds is suddenly gone and you're now playing. They're having to play a deck not really knowing or playing it with a huge disadvantage as a result. You never know. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the different ways that it affects the way the game is played is uh, it, there's so many different factors. That player knowledge, that knowledge of the card set, the knowledge of interactions, um, the general knowledge of the meta, all those things factor in to create what I think is just such a, a tasty and interesting way to play Keyforge. Um, I love playing Archon. I love bringing some spice. I love you know playing uh, old school reversal and stuff like that. But I feel like this is the format that offers the most key 4G experience for me right now. I'm a big fan of sealed because I love the idea of you know, make do with what you got. Can you make chicken salad out of chicken shit? But I love adding another factor to that. And this is what brings that out. Um, I, I would love to see 100%. this become totally official uh, as far as tournaments and things like that. I, I would love to do like a full on prime or a vault tour in this style. Yeah, I think I think as well, like the great thing about this is that it also provides you with the practice of a skill set that is very rarely used, but is but when it is used, it's at a very competitive level. And that's bidding for chains and playing with chains. And it just provides that that extra level of understanding. And you know what the other thing that's cool too is like if you actually have a really good deck and you're gonna put some chains on it, you're actually gonna have a taste potentially of of what is your actual threshold of that deck because you will have most likely if it's really good and you kept it and got bit up you're gonna get see what it's like with those chains and how it works and you'll be like like wow i just took down this tournament and i was playing it with nine chains and it didn't slow me down at all and i just put four chains on it now let's bring it out to archon next week with four chains because i know how it works with it it just provides this extra level of practice for mechanics that exist within the game that you're not getting to to really flex and practice that much and and that is for me i think the greatest like 
greatest part of it, aside from the fact that it creates a level playing field if you open a bad deck to a degree. Mm-hmm, absolutely agree. Um, I, I also feel like um, the joke that I like to make about sealed is that if you win it sealed, it's because you're a great player. And if you lose it sealed, it's because your deck sucked and you can pick whichever one of those makes the most sense for you. It's never <laughs> if you lose, it's never your fault. It's the deck's fault. And if you win, it's always because you're awesome and the deck is secondary. But I feel like this kind of adds to that element. Like, it allows you to inject more of yourself into the game. And to be totally honest, like, if you're the kind of person who just, like, you open the deck, you like it, you don't want to mess around, it gives you the option to just try and play your own deck as much as possible, as long as you're willing to pay for it, you know? And maybe you pay a big price and maybe you let the other person have it because you're uh, willing to take the risk. But there's options and choices, and that's one of the things that I think makes Keyforge great. Indeed, indeed. All right. We are almost at the end of the episode, but we cannot finish any episode of Help from Future Self without talking about something called... Help Help from Future 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 Self. It's a recurring segment in which we offer a little bit of Keyforge advice, maybe something that... uh, one of us individually messed up on or a little lesson we learned or something we're just trying to keep in mind as we go through our lives playing the game of Keyforge. Uh, I got one for us this week. Um, It's this. Do not rely on your memory of whether a deck is good. All right. If you're like me, if you're like Blake, you have a lot of decks in your collection. And maybe you've played some of those decks only a handful of times. Maybe you've played them one time. We decided that we were going to have a casual reversal day A couple of weeks ago here in Vancouver, everybody was just not even a tournament. Just bring out a crappy deck and let's play. Let's see if you have something crappy enough that you can be the winner of the day playing other people's crappy decks and making people play your crappy deck. I pulled out a deck that I remember being absolute garbage and I got smoked with it like for four games in a row. And it was because... I relied on my memory of it being not being good. I didn't look at the card pool in it. I didn't look at the possible efficiencies for it. I was thinking about how I played the game a year and a half ago when I wasn't as good a player as I am right now. And so it was just this false assumption of the deck not being good. And, you know, to be perfectly fair, it's probably a slightly below average deck. But in my memory, it had been total garbage, and it wasn't total garbage. It was simply a, a misattributed uh, assessment that was entirely based on uh, memories, and it didn't take into account the current meta, didn't take into account the actual strengths and weaknesses of the deck, and uh, I learned the lesson from that. So if you're a person who likes to play reversal, keep in mind that things change, people bring different things to the table, in as much as we understand that the meta also affects what decks are good, it also affects what decks are bad. So actually take a little bit of time, even in a fun casual format, if you're bringing out something to play, just to have a look at the deck and really try and understand it. Is it actually bad or did you just have a bad day with it once? And that's what's coloring your perception. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. And I honestly have to say, though, I think reversal is the hardest format to plan a deck for because of the actual preparation and testing to find out how bad your deck really is, is quite challenging to get that environment. So um, we should probably more often try and test this out within a casual night like you guys did, because I think that it's very challenging to figure that out. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of opportunities to play it. All right, we're just over half an hour right now, so we got to get out of here. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash HFFS 
podcast. You can find us at Twitter at the very same name, HFFS podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on Instagram and on The Crucible and on Twitter. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight, as well as my YouTube under the same name. And you can usually find me um, usually following this podcast in the evening on Thursdays with uh, Jupiter at the United Archons podcast. Love it. Love it. All right. Shout out to everybody listening to there right now. Um, Shout out to everybody who has been a supporter of this podcast. We got to get out of here. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. And until next time, stay focused.